everybody. Greetings, friends. Welcome back. And thank you for joining us. How are you today? Oh, I'm a little tired. Same. Yeah, I'm sorry, friends. I'm a little... It's been rough weekend stuff. School, kids, things, life, work, you know. Fun All times. the fun things I get to All look the fun forward to. Yay. <laughs> you still got a couple <laughs> years, though, but you definitely will have lots of sleepless nights in between. Oh, yeah. Then. I'm excited, though. Yeah. All right, fun. let's get into the stories. Yes, so I have quite an interesting story for you this week, even though I feel like I say that every week. <laughs> so I was trying to find something different, and I did. I found something that I've never heard about before, and I feel like some of you may not. If you, okay, my, my thought train here was I was watching a documentary about um, Anastasia, you know, the Romanovs and... Whether or not she really did escape and all that stuff. I'm going to disappoint you, like always, and tell you I have no idea what you're talking about. But I'm sure they do, so just keep talking. Oh, God. Just keep talking. It's so crushing. You know the movie, Anastasia? I've never watched it. So So just just a very, the briefest rundown that I can give you is the Romanovs were the last, like, super royal family of Russia, right? Okay. And... Their family was, like, ambushed, and they were all brutally massacred, and they were worth bajillion, like, $80 billion in that time. Okay. Like they were worth, like, a lot. super lots of money. Super lots. Okay. All the monies. And the monies. so when they were prepared, they were supposed to be, like, they were told that something was happening, and they were going to have to, like, they were going to go into hiding or go into safekeeping, but really, like, they were setting them up to be killed. And so they were, like, rushing to get out, and when they did... Supposedly, the two of the girls, and Anastasia being one of them, put all her jewels inside of her, like, corset and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that when they were all shot up, she actually survived because the jewels kind of, like, hindered the bullets or whatever. Okay. And that later on, it like, the, the movie of Anastasia is her coming back later and, like, trying to reclaim her name and everything and get her, her money, whatever. Well, there's been, it's been a debate for decades and decades. It's just forever trying to find out whether this woman actually was you know the real Anastasia yeah and there was a woman that died just recently and so that's just whatever so I was watching this documentary and then it got me thinking about like other missing children and stuff like that and I stumbled across Miss Marjorie West and this trigger warning to my mommy friends it's kind of just a heart saddening makes you kind of like want to hold your babies a little tighter or your belly a little tighter, you know, and keep them in there a little longer. <laughs> okay, so um, this is just a, we haven't had a good literally disturbed fact in a while. Let me cite my sources, I'm sorry. Uh, Charlieproject.com, theguardian.com, and then Google. Okay. So historically the greatest ransom paid that was ever in history, the, you know, the highest ransom ever paid ever, was for Atahualpa, which was the last emperor of the Incas, and to, it was to the Spanish conquistador Francisco Pizarro in 1532 or 1533, depending, I mean, you know, that was a long time ago, so somewhere in that time frame, in Cajamarca, Peru, which constituted a haul full of gold and silver worth in modern money some $1.5 billion. Damn. So that was the highest ransom that was ever paid in history, recorded history, anyways. 
So that's just a little fun fact for you. So 80 years ago, Marjorie vanished while at a Mother's Day picnic in the forest with her family. To this day, she is subject to one of the oldest unsolved cases recorded by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Her search was one of the largest for a child since the Linden, the, you know, the Lindbergh baby. You do know about the Charles Lindbergh yes. baby. Okay. Yes. Okay. So that's good. <laughs> His is probably like the most famous missing case, like missing kidnapping or whatever that's ever existed. And this actually happened in that time frame. Okay. Yeah. So the Lindbergh baby kidnapping was six years prior to this, to Marjorie West. Uh, the residents of the Western Pennsylvania and Marjorie's surviving relatives still hold out hope that she's alive. If she is, she may celebrate her 89th birthday this, this coming October. On Sunday 8th of May 1938, the West family, the father Shirley, mother Cecilia, and children Dorothea, who was 11, Alan, 7, and Marjorie, who was 4 at the time. Um, they attended a church in Bradford, a small city 90 minutes south of Buffalo, New York, and 90 minutes east of Titusville, Pennsylvania, which is the site of the country's first oil boom in 1859. Bradford enjoyed its own rush for liquid gold a dozen years later, providing a steady living for families like the West. Shirley was an assistant engineer at the Kindle Refining. So after church, the West drove 13 miles along the Highway 219 to a clearing in the Allegheny Forest. That was popular with hunters and fishermen. They joined family friends, Mr. and Mrs. Lloyd Ackerland. Around 3 p.m., Cecilia headed to the road to rest in the car. Her husband prepared to go trout fishing in the stream with Lloyd. The girls, Dorothea and Marjorie, wanted to pick wildflowers. Shirley warned them to watch for rattlesnakes behind the boulder nearby, and the girls gathered a bouquet of violets. Dorothea headed to the car to deliver them to their mother. When she turned around, her sister was gone. Oh. That was the last time she was ever seen. <laughs> And being at this time, they had to drive seven miles away to the nearest payphone to be able to report her missing. Oh, shit. And this is after, of course, you know, they searched and searched everywhere. And they found all that was left was the bouquet of flowers that she had picked that were just laying on the Aww. ground that was by the boulder. That's so sad. Yeah. What followed was a grueling search that spanned months and saw more than 3,000 local people hunting for Marjorie, with countless others locked into national newspaper coverage. When police couldn't find Marjorie that Sunday afternoon, 200 men joined in, including the Citizen Conservation Corps and the Moose and Elks Lodges. As darkness fell, oil men brought headlamps and all available flashlights in the city were pressed into service. The effort slowed when a cold rain fell at 1 a.m. On Monday, the search party grew to 500. They waded through the stream and stood 25 yards apart in a mile-long line, ultimately combing four square miles. Police interviewed motorists across an area spanning 300 square miles. By Tuesday, uh, May 10th, police brought bloodhounds from New York State. That evening, they found clues, but accounts vary. Two newspaper articles say that the dogs followed Marjorie's trail half a mile up a mountain to a cabin with its door nailed shut. Nothing of interest was found inside other and other media accounts, as well as those from Marjorie's descendants in online blogs and discussion threads, say that the dogs followed Marjorie's scent on sent to the road alongside the clearing. The searches found the crushed bouquet of violets picked for her mother for Mother's Day lying on the ground not far from the rock, close to where the flowers were pulled, wrote Catherine, who was the daughter of Marjorie's cousin, Joyce. Um, and this was on her genealogy blog. Many people believed in 1938, as they do now, that Marjorie was picked up at the road. Witnesses told police of three cars that had passed through the area around 3 p.m. The drivers of two were identified by Tuesday night, the third, whom the witness says was a man, was fleeing in his Plymouth, 
Plymouth sedan so fast, an oncoming motorist told police that he had to pull into a ditch. On Wednesday afternoon, Bradford Mayor Hugh Ryan issued a plea for 1,000 volunteers for the next day's search. He got 2,500. Damn. Yeah. The search was praised for its organization thanks in part to the men who, like Shirley, has served in the Great War. At 5.30 a.m., surveyors mapped out the land, and by 8 a.m., a line of men studying shoulder to sh- or standing shoulder to shoulder several miles long grew impatient as the Chapel Fork Road in the Chapel Fork Road, until leaders gave the budge, you know, the, the signal for them to enter the forest. Refinery workers rubbed elbows with professional men. Women doled out 1,600 cups of coffee prepared in wash boilers for hot laundry. By the end of the week, the search had covered 35 square miles, with Marjorie still out of sight. There were discoveries, um, which were a swath of lace near the boulder and a fresh hole a few miles away, but Marjorie's aunt told the police she hadn't worn that lace, worn lace that day, and two men had admitted to using the hole to hide cask of cherry wine. Oh, okay. Yeah. Engineers pumped out a muddy well, and Native Americans tracked she-bears, uh, which were mother bears they believed were prone to carrying off small children, to no avail. To, like, for their own or something? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if own? it's for their own or if it's for their, their own. own. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Uh-huh. Hey, kids, I got you a chicken snack. Or chicken snack. I'm sorry. <laughs> Kids I was meal. Say, kids meal. <laughs> That's so horrible. <laughs> that is terrible. And really sad because I mean she's this is actually she's a really cute little baby and it makes me she looks like they like if you look at the picture, she looks like Shirley Temple. She's got the cute mm. little red curls and sweet little face mm. and oh, I don't know. Anyways, um so Shirley did not leave the forest for a week. Until, according to the May, 6th, May 16th edition of the era, he consented to come to Bradford. He ate his evening meal at home, and then he returned. Police began circulating a poster describing Marjorie's curly red hair, freckles, and red Shirley Temple hat and patent leather shoes. Cecilia West stayed at home so as not to miss a phone call. May 13th of 1938, the state police commissioner, P.W. Foote, told the Associated Press that West's disappearance probably began with her liking to play hide-and-seek. They always say it's hide-and-seek. Yeah. A detail of four police searched the, the area for five months. Newspaper coverings of the disappearance linked it with a 1910 mystery in which two boys vanished near the forest within a few hours of each other. On the 16th of April that year, Edward Adams, who was nine at the time, was fishing with his buddies near Lamont, Pennsylvania, and then they heard a wild man cursing in the woods. The boys ran, but when the group stopped, Eddie was gone. Thirteen miles away in the town of Ludlow, Michael Stefan, who was seven at the time, fished with a friend and was walking home when the other boy looked back and Michael had vanished. Newspapers at the time reported that a uh, Mr. Aerosmith said that his mentally unbalanced son, Harry, who was 32, had also wandered off the same day near Lamont. Oh. Yeah. But Harry returned a week later with no knowledge of the boys, um, the police said. Thirteen days after the disappearances, a mail carrier discovered a handwritten note on a Lamont railroad trestle which said, We'll return boy for $10,000. And that was the last clue that was ever found. Okay, so he was snatched up by somebody, yeah. not an animal. Yeah. So two years later, the Buffalo police captured the po- the postcard killer, J. Frank Hickey, who admitted to murdering two boys in Buffalo and Manhattan nine years apart. Okay. Many suspected that he had killed other boys in the region, and Edward Adams' mother wrote to Buffalo police to ask whether Hickey was 
ever mentioned her son. When Miss Adams died in 1933, the Associated Press reported that she'd kept a light in her window for 23 years waiting for Eddie. That's so sad. It is sad. So those disappearances were 11 and 19 miles from Marjorie's picnic, respectively. It is hard to believe that the same wild man could have been lurking in the woods nearly 20 years later. But in case it, but the cases were a testament to the fact that anyone could have been in the forest. Mm-hmm. In fact, the air reported that on the September 14th of 1938, that a 55-year-old woodsman was arrested for assaulting another man with a double-bladed axe during an argument while they were working on a woods operation in the Chapel Fork area. Oh, okay. Yeah. And this is near where she disappeared. Okay. So the story said the woodsman had been questioned about Marjorie one, at one point, but they were released. It was probably it had nothing to do with her. Mm-hmm. So they say that if, if Marjorie was snatched, it could have been for profit. This was during the Great Depression, and child kidnappings had become popular. It was a low-tech way to make a buck. Kidnapping waves swept the nation, blared in New York Times headline on March 3rd, 1932, Two days after the abduction of the son of aviator Charles Lindbergh. At the time, some feared that cars were a relatively new technology were going to cause an increase in kidnappings, and they weren't wrong. Abductions did increase with the use of automobiles and with greater highway usage. Still, many of those who believed Marjorie was abducted thought it was not for ransom, but for a different type of money-making enterprise. Now this... That's where shit gets twisted, okay? As if this isn't messed up enough. This is where it gets like, oh. So on September 12th of 1950, Tennessee authorities announced allegations that Georgia Tan, the executive director of the Memphis branch of Tennessee Children's Home Society, had adopted out more than 1,000 babies for over $1 million since the 1930s. They say that she tricked poor couples into giving them up. So in the, in the Great Depression, they would sell their kids because they were so poor that they couldn't even eat, and they would sell their kids to rich Ugh. people. And she would trick them into doing it. And that's mm-hmm. just the way that she would get them to do it legally. Right. And if they didn't, then you just go snatch them. Yep. And actually, um, when I was researching her, like just her specifically, because we could do a full-on like two-parter on just her alone, I believe that it said there was... Ultimately, 2,000 children that were, I'm not going to say adopted out in her care because not all of them made it that far, but there was 2,000 children that came into her care in her time frame. I think I know about her story. I think I've heard it. I had never heard of her before, and I just, this Mm -hmm. blows my mind. Tan died three days after the investigation became public. So, Yeah. Many of the children never knew their birth parents, including famed professional wrestler Ric Flair, who was born in 1949. He wrote of the circumstances in his autobiography, which I kind of read. I read another separate article on, and I didn't want to, like, include too much of it because it's just, like, a whole other tangent. But he didn't find out until recently when he was starting his biography what his real name even was. He always knew he was adopted, but he didn't know the circumstances into which what happened. So he was one of those babies. He was, and he's, like, a famous person. And then, so Joan Crawford, which I'm not going to lie, and I'm sure this is one of my moments for you for other people because I know who she is, but I don't, like, know who she is. Then we'll just cut that out. Yeah. (laughs) I know the Um, name. But, yeah, I know the name, but I just couldn't think of anything that, like, pinpoints her specifically. Anyways, she actually adopted one of these babies, and she had no idea. Oh. Yeah. So the, the parents that are adopting the kids didn't know that they were stolen either. I'm not 
not going to say all of them because I feel like I'm sure there's like some shady underground, you yeah. know, how people, but the majority of them had no idea. I kind of feel like this is sort of like the whole like college scandal thing, you know, where they were just trying to get their baby into college, but they didn't really know how they got yeah. their baby into college. Yeah. The back doorway, but didn't yeah. have to go through the nitty gritty. They yeah. just got the out, the outcome right. or whatever. So she did all the dirty work on getting the babies. I mean, I'm not going to say, like, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here for a second. And I'm literally just playing it for a second because I'm not saying I really agree with this. But at least they were going to rich, well-to-do families. So it wasn't, you know, they, yeah, but, but at the same time, they were snatched away from their mommies and waiting 28 yes. years with a light in but her window. Just you know? because they're rich doesn't mean they're good families either. That's true. Anyways, in, in this Ric Flair's, his depiction, though, like when he was talking about it, he's like, you know, I never had the desire to look for my biological parents just because I knew my mom and dad were my mom and dad. And he ended up having a pretty good outcome, I think. Like his parents were pretty good to him and he was the only child and mm-hmm. they just kind of devoted their life to him. But anyways, this is what this lady was doing. She was snatching up babies and selling them off. Like I said, most of the people, they had no idea how she was actually getting these babies. But news stories from five months later rendered a tan theory unlikely. In October 1938, Pennsylvania State Police tracked down merchant Conrad Fridley of Ridgely, West Virginia, and he said that on that evening, he and daughter Lois, who was five at the time, were returning home from the visit to to Parsons, West Virginia, and had to stop because of the fog. Lois became frustrated and cried, and they left the hotel early the next morning to open his shop. Census records from 1940 show a Conrad Fridley, who was 31, originally, who in 1940 had a daughter, eight. As spring turned to summer, national media focused on Hitler's annexation of Austria and the suffering United States economy. But Western Pennsylvania press continued to follow Marjorie's case. The state police investigation continued off and on for years. The state police investigation continued off and on for six years, reported the era in 1955, noting that Shirley and Cecilia West had actually separated around 1953. Family members say Marjorie's closest relatives went to their grave believing she was alive. Tammy Ditton, who was a longtime teacher in Bradford, took a class of hers to the Allegheny Forest in 2008 to learn about archaeology. During the trip, two men from the Civil Conservation Corps dis- discussed their search as use for Marjorie. They talked about how hard they searched. They searched shoulder to shoulder constantly. The class undertook a project to research the case and speak with young kids about safety. After the Olean Times Her- Heralds covered the project, Dittman got a call from another elderly man who is now blind, who, who, was also, who had also searched as well. The man told Dittman there was no way the little girl ha- could have been in the woods. The fact that he contacted me practically on his deathbed, shows how sad it was. Maybe he had a little hope we'd find out more. Dittman, who, who has also hiked near Chapel, For- or Chapel Fork, acknowledged the hazards nearby, including hundreds of old wells that are hard to notice. You can step right into them and go down, she says, yet believes that most likely the explanation is that Marjorie was kidnapped. I hope she was at least in a good family, Dittman says. Mm. Few of Marjorie's descendants have written online about the case. Catherine, who was the daughter of Marjorie's first cousin, Joyce, explained on her family's blog, again, as we talked about before, that my grandfather searched for weeks, long after the manhunt was called off, returning home late into the night. Three small children sat on the porch steps waiting for him, but they knew each night from the slope of his shoulders that he didn't find the little girl with bouncing red curls. 
The granddaughter of Dorothea West, um, Angel, wrote in 2009, I remember listening to my grandmother tell me the stories about Marjorie and the sadness she felt for leaving her sister alone for those few moments. My grandmother held on to her feeling of responsibility until her passing two years ago. So in 2012, state police took cheek swabs for DNA from two cousins of Marjorie and sent them into the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children, but so far there's been no hits on it. Okay. But both agencies got tips. Gusman says that in 2014, an employee of a hospital in Rochester, New York, read about a case online and called to say that they had a patient named Marjorie who rarely had visitors. But the woman's niece had seen immigration records and confirmed that she'd been born in 1922. However, one Bradford native believes he knows the answer to the mystery. Harold Thomas, a.k.a. Bud Beck, was a writer and um, a college professor with a Ph.D. in linguistics. He researched the case after he heard about it in a bar that he used to run. Around 1988, when the Internet success was becoming more widespread, he posted a $10,000 reward for information about Marjorie. He included up-to-date photos of Dorothea figuring Marjorie would resemble her. One woman contacted him to say that she'd worked at a company in Florida with a nurse who looked similar. Beck took a trip south to meet several people about whom he'd gotten tips. The nurse did look like Dorothea, but denied being Marjorie. Around 2005, Beck says that he heard from her again and he went to meet her. By then, she'd returned to her childhood farm in North Carolina. When he caught up with her there, she related a story that her mother told her when she was nearing the end of her life. In 1938, the nurse's father left that very farm and drove north to work at Bradford's refineries for the winter. Come spring, it was time to return to his crops. Driving south past the Allegheny Forest on Mother's Day, he hit a little girl. There wasn't anybody there, Beck recounts. He was going... He was going to take her to the hospital in Kane, and he was he was afraid she was dead. Mm-hmm. But as he was driving with the unconscious girl in the car, she woke up seemingly unharmed, and he and his wife had just lost their only daughter that winter. The delivery had been difficult, and they didn't think they could have more children, so the man brought Marjorie to the farm and raised her there. I guess that's probably why he sped by so fast, was trying to get her to the hospital. And that's the only thing that, that connects those two dots as far as what... Mm-hmm. actual you know eyewitness accounts from the scene and this story yeah so to me this makes the most sense there's still kind of like questions about whether it's valid mm-hmm. or not i mean it's gonna be because this is forever ago and but. she was so young at the time she probably doesn't even remember her right. past life and so okay a few years later he lost an arm on board an aircraft carrier in the second world war beck says the man told his wife that he thought it was god's way of punishing him for what he'd done the nurse used to tell her parents that she remembered another family, but they dismissed it. She also remembered a place with snow way over her head, Beck says. Oh. Mm-hmm. After the Second World War, her parents had four more children, according to Beck. The nurse only told Beck the story after he had made two promises. One, he couldn't tell anyone about her identity except for Dorothea, whom she wanted to, oh, who she wanted to meet. And two, Beck could only publish her story after she died. Oh. Interesting. Mm-hmm. She probably didn't want to deal with, like, I mean, this is one of the biggest missing cases yeah. in history, so I'm sure she didn't want to deal with all of the, mm-hmm. especially being as old as she was at this point. True. By that time, Dorothea was in ill health and couldn't meet, quote, Marjorie, Beck says. The nurse died about a decade ago. Beck kept his promise and self-published Finding Marjorie West in 2010. There's no question it's her, Beck says. But people have pressed him to notify the authorities. 
Then he says, what's it going to accomplish? One family is dead, and the other's been living under a set of circumstances they believe to be true. My mother and father were considered good people in the community. Locals who've read the book have debated its conclusions on Facebook, obviously. Mm, like we all do. Yeah. Marjorie's cousin's daughter, Catherine, discounted the story in 2012 in a discussion thread on websleuths.com, which is obviously a site that is dedicated to pe- people who are trying to solve missing person cases. I figured I should go check this out. Mm-hmm. Might give me something, something fun to do. Catherine wrote that the state trooper she talked to didn't take Beck's narrative seriously. Beck says he understands why people are frustrated, particularly those involved in the search, but he won't betray the confidence. Bob Lowry, a vice president of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, hadn't heard of Beck's book, but said that Beck or anyone else with information about Marjorie should come forward. He notes the case in the third old is the third. He notes that the case is the third oldest in their files. I would think that anyone alive today who was living at that time would have vivid memories of this, he says. When something like when something happens to a child of four, there's a need to have the truth shared so that everyone knows. I definitely think that's one of those, like, you don't like not knowing what happened to a little four-year-old child. Because mm-hmm. the possibilities are endless. And just to, it's one thing if you know it and you accept it and you can come to terms with it. But when there's so many outcomes, you just have no idea. And so your mind's just constantly spinning about yeah. it, you know? If Beck's tale is true, it would explain how Marjorie disappeared so quickly and without a trace, as well as the speeding Plymouth. The story begs questions. How were two people able to keep the secret so long? I feel like that's a trauma bond kind of thing. Yeah. Like, you can... I mean, you can keep a secret. Did the sorrow they felt on Mother's Day drive them to rationalize the act? I mean, it could be. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the tale is too good to be true. In Beck's book... Nurse claims she was a sobbing girl spotted in West Virginia on Mother's Day night. According to the article from October 1938, the police in West went to meet Conrad Fridley, the merchant who said he was there. Police told told the press that his daughter resembled Marjorie, but it wasn't her, and the girl spotted that night had different clothes than Marjorie. Beck dismissed the newspaper account, saying that he stands by his story. Relatives remain weary. In 2015, an anonymous reviewer on Amazon, presumably a member of the family, wrote that she was shocked Beck was selling the book after, quote, making false promises and leading my grandmother on a wild goose chase for years. Yeah. Yeah. So what if the nurse wasn't Marjorie? Where did she go? One cannot discount the rough terrain in the woods, obviously. Um, you know, the, there was two boys in 1962 that died while exploring an abandoned clay mine in the western Pennsylvania, or in western Pennsylvania, prompting Bradford officials to finally start closing all mines, caves, and wells. The effects of that day, Catherine wrote on her blog, lasted long into mom's adulthood, and when she had children, she made ex- she was extra cautious about where they were and who they were with. Marjorie's case, like other child disappearances at the time, had a ripple effect on families Long before mass media attention was ever trained on Adam Walsh, was which he was like one of the ones that prompted the whole stranger danger kind of thing. Mm. You know, because back in this day, there was no such thing. Stranger no. danger was not a thing. True. <laughs> um, so responding to recent newspaper essays about parents becoming overprotective due to modern media coverage of tragedies, senior citizens have responded that their parents became more protective after the Lindbergh case. There was a similar effect in western Pennsylvania in 1938. This West case was a very, very sad object lesson of my childhood. Not to wander away, not to go anywhere with strangers, recalled an elderly woman on a Bradford community Facebook group. Regardless of the statistics of stranger danger, parents will always have to negotiate 
their own comfort level about, you know, being protective. Tammy Dittman, the Bradford teacher, says that children should be wary and vigilant. Some children need to be scared. They think that nothing can happen to them. She could still be living, said Jack Covert, uh, Marjorie's cousin, in an interview shortly before he died, but she's probably not around here. Marjorie was lost four decades before the nationwide stranger danger panic over kidnapping set off. So four decades before this is when she went, mm-hmm. vanished into nowhere. It was, this, this was set off when the son of eventual America's Most Wanted host, Josh Walsh, as we know, you know, the, the show. Mm-hmm. That's where this whole thing came from. And he disappeared from a Florida mall in 1981. After the much publicized Adam Walsh abduction, parents became more fearful about where their children went and who they were with. And government agencies instituted safety programs, which I remember this happening when I was a kindergartner, where they they took fingerprints of kids to keep on file. More recently, the hit Netflix series Stranger Things, which is about a fictional 12-year-old boy named Will Byers, if you are Patrick Starr and have no idea, who um, he was snatched up into another dimension and yeah. prompted the renewed discussion of the idealistic times when children roam free and parents rarely worried. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, this is just like a reminder of, hey... Just because you did it when you were a kid doesn't mean it's a good idea. No. I have this conversation with my child constantly about why she can't just... And it makes me sad because I remember many times when I was younger playing in my yard and, you know, going outside and just being outside all the time. But we are not in a location currently where that's an okay thing for them to do. Mm -mm. And I'm sorry. I'm just not going to take those chances. Yeah, no. You shouldn't. Mm -mm. You don't know who is going to... Like, you hear all these people that are, like, pillars of the community killing yeah. people and shit. Like, even the good guy that you think won't hurt anybody could... Be holding a little kid in their basement. Uh-huh. Out in their little... What is? What was that one story that you were telling me about with the dad and the It was, like, a girl. cellar out in the middle. Yeah. Build. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know what happened to that poor little baby, but... I really hope... I mean, not that this is a good scenario anyway, but I kind of hope it's the... The farmer, yeah, daddy situation. Like she just kind of, and he just kind of freaked and was like, yeah. "Well, op, you know, opportunity presented itself." <laughs> still <laughs> I don't so know. bad, but yeah, still, but at least she's alive and had a good life. And it, right, and it wasn't something like super traumatic to where she died somehow in the woods or or something got other. In a well yeah, because that's traumatic and yeah. sad. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know, but that just and then so this. This whole thing opened up to, you know, the whole Georgia Tan thing, and I'm that blew my mind. Just freaking baby snatcher. Mm-hmm. Literally, just going around snatching babies. Yeah, I mean, that's happening now with, like, but not as, not selling it to people, like, But in it could a good be, way. too, though. It could be that, too. It the could human be human trafficking with the sex rings and stuff. And that's just stuff. the darker underbelly part of it, you know. Ugh. Yeah, it's Anyways. super scary. I know, as you're sitting here preparing. Uh-huh. It's all good. You know. Joy's, I'm going to be motherhood. a helicopter parent. I can already she tell She is, you. for sure. But it's okay. <laughs> well, that was a story. Thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. See, but see, listen. It wasn't gory or deep. I no, can, yeah. I'm not big on kids' stories, you know. I'm not either. But at least this one has some mm-hmm. room for imagination that could be good or better yeah <laughs> so, so are we ready for yours i guess so let's hear what you got this week so mine is the nyack house 
And it's the only legally haunted house in America. Oh, interesting. So I got this story off TikTok um, from this user named Goal, like G-H-O-U-L, please, underscore. Okay. um, Realtor.com and Wikipedia. So this house is actually up for sale right now for $1.9 million. Oh, bananas. It is so pretty. You'll have to look at it. I will post the realtor.com link in the show notes so y'all can go look at it it's a baby blue victorian style house in nike new york it sits right on the hudson river so mm-hmm. you can see all the sailboats going by from the backyard mm-hmm. it's 4628 square feet and was built in 1890 has five bedrooms and four and a half bathrooms it's a house on a very quiet street. It has a lot of original detail, inlaid stained glass pocket door, says listing agent Nancy Blaker Weber, who she's actually selling the house for the third time. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's totally renovated, but the owners retained the beauty of the original house, so they didn't take it and turn it into something it's not. They mm-hmm. enhanced it, is what she said. So the house was owned by a woman named Helen Ackley and her family, and she had reported the existence of numerous poltergeists in the house. Oh, joy. Um, she reported this to Reader's Digest and the local newspaper on three occasions between 1977 and 1989. Here's a little backstory before we get into why it's now a Lily Haunted House. Okay. Because that piqued my interest. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested <laughs> in what qualifies legally haunted. Yes. So the house had been vacant and was in disrepair when Helen and George Ackley moved into the waterfront house in 1960. But their four children, Cynthia, George, Cara, or Kara, and William. Local children, I guess, warned them that the house was haunted. Mm -hmm. Though no prior paranormal incidents appeared to have been published um, publicly, obviously. So Helen claimed that there were at least three ghosts in the residence. She described two as a married couple who lived there in the 18th century, and the other was a Navy lieutenant in the American Revolution. In 1993, she was contacted by a paranormal research, Bill Merrill, and medium Glenn Johnson, who claimed to have already made contact with two of the spirits. The pair met with Helen and disclosed that the couple were likely the poltergeist of Sir George and Lady Margaret, who lived in the region in the 18th century, So in 1995, Merrill and Johnson published a book about their findings entitled Sir George, the Ghost of Nyack, which is, I guess, available on Amazon. I'm going to go read it. So Helen claimed to have seen George, Sir George, sorry, Hmm. sitting in midair, watching her paint the ceiling in the living room, rocking back and forth. She said, I was on an eight-foot ladder. I asked him if he approved of what we were doing to the house, if the colors were to his liking, and he smiled, nodded his head. Helen's daughter, Cynthia, when she was a child, reportedly would be woken most mornings by one of the spirits shaking her bed. When Cynthia was out of school for spring break, she announced loudly before going to bed that she did not have school in the morning and would like to sleep in. The next morning, she was not awoken by a shaking bed. <laughs> so they were like her alarm clock, like, right. get your ass up, oh, go my. to bed. So, that's funny. Helen reported to neighbors that she heard phantom footsteps and slamming doors. Helen's grandchildren allegedly received trinkets, such as rings from the ghost. Oh, well, that's fun. But they would later vanish. Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> like my book in the closet. Yeah, so there you go. Oh, that's mm-hmm. such, it's still, like... 
I'm still weirded <laughs> out by that. So Helen's daughter-in-law was gifted disappearing coins in the same manner. And Cynthia, as an adult, claimed to receive silver sugar tongs. <laughs> I don't know. That's such a weird little thing. That's very specific. Like, here you go. Go make you some tea. Um, <laughs> Maybe she's like, look, you need to take a chill pill. Here's your sugar for your, you know, uh-huh. I don't know. So Helen claimed that her son came eye to eye with the figure of the revolutionary Navy lieutenant. Mm. Okay. Mark Cavanaugh who lived in the home briefly while engaged to the daughter, Cynthia, had reported hearing a conversation in a vacant vacant room. Mm -hmm. Later, he recounted another experience. Sin and I already had fallen asleep, and I was drifting. Then I heard the bedroom door creak and the floorboards squeak. My back was to the edge of the bed. Suddenly, the edge of the bed by my midsection um, depressed down, and I felt something lean against me. I went literally stone stiff. I was speechless and could hardly move. I was able to twist my neck around to see a womanly figure in a soft dress through the moonlight from the bay windows. I felt like she was looking straight at me. After about a minute, the presence got up and walked back out of the room. I finally relaxed enough to shake my wife out of sound sleep, acting like a toddler who just had a nightmare. (laughs) So all but his accounts were written by Helen and was submitted to the Reader's Digest magazine and was published in its May issue of 1977. Hmm. So despite these somewhat unnerving tales, Ackley said that they had a peaceful coexistence with the poltergeist. And the only account of any terrorizing events is Kavanaugh's tale reproduced above. Kavanaugh later reflected on the incidents that he experienced and came to the conclusion that the ghosts were evaluating him to make sure he was a good suitor for Cynthia. Oh, I see. The house went up for sale in about 1989 or 1990, and a man named Jeffrey uh, Stramboski wanted to buy it. So this is where we get into why it's a legally deemed haunted house. Okay. So I guess they didn't like this guy. We'll see. Okay. So... Mr. Jeffrey Tram- Trambuski wanted to buy it. Miss Ackley's real estate broker, Ellis Realty, revealed the haunting to Jeffrey before he entered in a contract to purchase the house in 1989. Because after Trambuski signed the contract, a down payment of $32,500 on the agreed upon price of $650,000 at the time. Mm-hmm. But Helen would not sign her into the contract until after the haunting was disclosed to the buyer. Mm. She wanted to make sure that that was... They were, they under, were under... They understood what they were getting into. But yes, what right. came with the house. So the broker, I guess, called Jeff and advised him of what Helen had claimed, and he laughed and said, we'll just have to call Ghostbusters, which I guess had just come out that year. So it oh, was like a popular right. you know, movie then. So the broker then advised Helen that he was advised and that, and then she ended up signing her into the contract and the house was heading to closing. Mm-hmm. About one week after the contracts of sale were fully signed, Jeffrey requested an in-person meeting at the property with Helen to directly discuss the ghosts. Both the broker and the seller told the court this sequence of events. Jeffrey claimed that he never advised this. Uh, Jeffrey was from New York City and was not aware of the folklore of the Nyack, including the widely known haunting story. 
While Jeffrey learned of the haunting story, he filed an action requesting rescission of the contract of sale and for damages for fraudulent misrepresentation by Ackley and Ellis Realty. So I guess the Ellis Realty never told him about the haunting. Really? Is what they're saying. Mm -hmm. So Jeff did not attend the closing, which caused him to forfeit his down payment, although he was then not obligated to buy the house. A New York Supreme Court trial dismissed the action and... Jeffrey appealed. So since the Ackleys moved from the home in the beginning of the 1990s, there have not been any accounts of paranormal activity. Near the beginning of the majority opinion, which was three out of five justices, and the most well-known conclusion having reported the ghost presence in both of national publication and the local press, which she did, she reported it to the Reader's Digest and Mm -hmm. local newspaper that it was haunted. The defendant is a stop stooped to deny their existence and as a matter of law the house is haunted the court noted that regardless of whether the house was truly haunted or not the fact that the house had been widely reported as being haunted greatly affected its value notwithstanding these conclusions the court affirmed affirmed that the dismissal of the fraudulent misrepresentation action and stated that the realtor was under no duty to disclose the haunting to 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 potential buyers. Thus, no damages were available to Jeffrey Strombowski because New York at the time adhered to property law doctrine of caveat emptin? Emptor? Emptor. Oh, whatever that means. Yeah. The appellate court reversed the trial court's decision regarding the rescission action. However, as it went on to note that the haunting was not a condition that a buyer or potential buyer of real property can and should be able to ascertain upon reasonable inspection of the property. According to the court, through the doctrine of caveat emptor, I I don't know what I'm saying, Mm -hmm. would normally operate to the bar of rescission action causing... Okay, basically, like, they didn't have to disclose that information, but because it was publicly, public knowledge... They deemed it legally haunted. So that so way there's that, not any more issues yes. again. Like, it's legally haunted. You yes. know that coming in. If you buy it, you uh-huh. buy it. And so it's funny because now it's actually in all the law books, this one case. Oh, wow. So if you Google Ackley versus Stromboski, you'll find all of the law documents that people in law school actually take classes on this one little case. That's so crazy. Well, it just goes to show all the different little loopholes in law that you have to learn and what people are going to try to, you know, Mm -hmm. fight you on. So the case generated a lot of publicity and the area real estate agents had between 25 and 50 potential buyers calling within a week of the court's decision. Of course. Among the prospective buyers to the house was Kreskin, who was a renowned mentalist interested in purchasing a haunted house in which to curate his collection of paranormal paraphernalia. Um, Helen sold the house to another buyer, though, and moved to Florida in 1991. Helen Ackley died in 2003, and her son-in-law lay odds that her spirit has taken up residence back at that house. There has not been any public reports of hauntings in recent years. Since the Ackleys have moved from the home in the beginning of the 1990s, there have not been any more accounts of paranormal activity reported by any of the new owners, of which there have been three new owners. However, 
Merrill and Johnson reported that Sir George and Lady Margaret expressed that the spirits were not fond of the new owners and were thinking of moving on. It has also been reported that after the judgment against Helen in the lawsuit, she claimed that she was moving and taking the ghost with her. <laughs> so maybe they just went with her. Yeah, really, yeah, we'll just we'll just keep going. Yeah, we like you. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. Totally. That is very interesting. Never heard of that one before. Later. Same. But yeah, y'all should, um, if y'all have time at all while you're listening to this, just to go check out the house. It is so pretty. Um, it's a it. giant Victorian style baby blue house, and it, it's like definitely my style. <laughs> Little Soso is going to jump on and tell her story. Hello. Hi, Sophie. Today's story is on the Altima. <laughs> <laughs> In Georgia folklore, the Altamaha, or Alti, we're going we're gonna to call it the Alti now. That's better. Okay. <laughs> is a legendary creature alleged to inhibit the myriad small streams and abandoned rice fields. Okay. Near the mount of the Altamaha uh-huh. River, <laughs> southeastern Georgia. Darien, Georgia was first settled by the former inhabitants of Intervernus, Scotland. Mm-hmm. Some of you might recognize the name from the stories of the Loch Ness Monster. I, I don't think anyone's going to recognize that name. <laughs> okay, anyway. I'm these sorry. hardy Scotmen braved what? Braved the long journey to America, where they formed the town of New Iverness, later renamed Darien. All right. In mid 1730s, almost as soon as they settled, word began to spread of another serpentine water beast roaming the waterways near uh, wait, Altamaha mm-hmm. River. Okay. The Altamaha <laughs> is said to be like a mix between a crocodile, a manatee, a dolphin, and an eel. Yes. I saw pictures of it, of like what people like described it to be. Mm-hmm. And it's like a. You know that one creature from that one movie where he like the boy finds the egg and like he keeps the yeah egg the water and, horse the water yeah horse. it kind of looks like that but like okay. it's like green and everything mm-hmm. that's interesting that's that thing was the, cute though this does not sound cute it, it it doesn't look cute but that's how I can like the best that's thing how you can I can relate it to that's how I, the, yeah for your like you not knowing what it looks like gotcha okay it is said to have a long neck and the head of a croc the body of a manatee and the tail of a dolphin although it is usually depicted with one large diamond-shaped fin as the opposed of the forked tail fins of a dolphin. Its coloration is disputed, some saying it is slate gray, while others say it is more green. Okay. There have also been disparities in size and length. Generally, those who get a good look at the whole creature will tell you that it is about 20 feet in length. Okay, that's a pretty big fish monster Mm -hmm. thing. Creature. There have been sightings of much smaller or much larger beasts with similar appearances. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they're babies. You said they're smaller but similar appearances. It's the babies. Oh, yeah, that would... Yeah. <laughs> Get your shit together. I'm sorry. As usual, there's no concrete evidence of the point of Tualti being real. At least not scientifically. Well, who cares about science, right? <laughs> <laughs> It's not like people have dedicated their lives to it. Anyway, there are many <laughs> compelling stories and tales from <laughs> Some dating back to before the land was even settled by European immigrants. Nobody can pin the overactive imaginations of the Ivernesians. 
Although it is starting is a startling coincidence that the small group the, the same group of people who found Nessie also discovered a second water monster in their new home, they were not really first to see it, however. As one might notice, Altamaha is hardly a Scottish name. No, the first group of people to tell tales of a water serpent were the Tama Indians? Mm-hmm. Tama Indians? Their tales spoke of, of a large snake that bellowed and hissed from the water's edge. It was from these natives that the settlers first heard the name of the creature. Reports of Alti were not well documented, documented until the 1900s. And even when the reports were not really published or given much attention to until the 1980s, there are over four, 350 recorded sightings of the beast, a large number for any... It is only the lack of photographs or video footage that allows this creature to maintain its cryptid status. Unlike most similar sea or lake monsters, Altamaha seems to keep a regular stream of sightings. That's all I had for the... Um, the Altamaha. Okay, I don't know what you're saying. Well, thank you, Sophie, for sharing that with us. That Hope was you enjoyed. Come back next week. Always next week. Yes. All right, thank you. Stop the recording. Uh, yeah, g- goodbye, people. Thank, thank, bye. Stories from- Thanks, Sophie, so much. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you guys for listening. Um, hope you have a good week. Yeah. Do a good deed. Make good choices. Yes. Use love um, in your heart. And I said that in a while. There you go. Use love in your heart um, and go follow us on our socials. Yeah, and share with your friends. And share. Use that love in your yes. heart and your fingers. And your, oh. Um, oh anyways, I mean, yeah. I did take, take that it as there, what but that you was want. A good, that was a good catch. Yep. Okay, mm-hmm. bye, guys. Bye.